0: Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, we pray, that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We pray these things through Christ, the living word, and for his glory. Amen. I wonder if you've ever felt pressure, a significant amount of pressure to fit in with the majority opinion of our society. I'm thinking as I look back that Apostle Peter was one of those people. I think Peter without question was someone who was very familiar with this sense of pressure to conform because it was because of pressure like that that Peter denied his very close association with someone he cared about deeply but this person had been singled out this person had been Shown to be, in their minds, in the minds of the majority opinions of culture, that he was an extremist. He was someone who was a radical, someone who was outside of the religious mainstream. And So on the night in which Jesus was arrested, Peter followed his beloved master at a distance, but went with the crowd that arrested him and went into the courtyard of the chief priest. And Peter sat there among those who were trying to stay warm in the night coolness around this fire, watching the proceedings, sort of seeing where was this thing going to go. And Peter in his own mind, sorry, he was minding his own business. He was just sitting there, not trying to draw attention to himself at all. And someone accused him of being an associate of Jesus of Nazareth. Not just once, but it happened again and again. And the third time it happened, each time, of course, he denied it, but the third time, they noticed that even his accent, which apparently he must have had an accent. Now, I don't have an accent. You folks, many of you have an accent, but I don't have one. I mean, you know, uh, West Virginia, we, we, we grew up speaking normally. But uh, Peter was from the north. And so apparently his accent gave him away. And so they said, listen, you're one of those guys that was associated with Jesus because you're from Galilee. We can tell by the way you talk. At that point, he's afraid of what the authorities were going to do to him. And so he tried his best to avoid detection and he, he just became so angry and insistent and he swore. He brought a curse upon himself and he insisted. He said, I don't know what in the world you're talking about. Complete denial. Instead of being set apart unto Jesus as a loyal, devoted disciple, here is Peter by his words and by his behavior seeking to do his best to set himself apart from any close association with Jesus Christ. And why was that? Why would he behave that way on that particular night? It's because he knew of the potential for who knows what kind of serious suffering was going to be meted out by the authorities, uh, particularly in light of how they were treating Jesus. Now, I want you to take that incident in Peter's life, fast forward, and think of many years going by, and now Peter is, years later, a godly church leader, and he's writing to fellow Christians who have been dispersed in a number of different towns and different colonies there in the Roman Empire and the area of what we would call today the country of Turkey, northern territories there. Here he is doing his best to encourage his readers to do something what? To not cave into the pressure to conform by the society around him and to not follow his example. He's urging them, listen, don't do that. He urges them to keep on being different. He is urging them to, um, you know, if it's necessary, suffer as a disciple of Jesus, but don't conform. He says, stand out if you have to. And he knew that if they refused to adopt the various widely accepted practices of his day among his pagan neighbors, that these believers are going to face all sorts of suffering. He knew it was happening. It had already happened. It was gonna happen at that moment. It's gonna happen in the future. As a matter of fact, if you read through the first epistle of Peter, as I did this past week, it's interesting how Peter alludes to the followers of Jesus who were being treated like this. They were being criticized. They were being insulted. They were being falsely accused or maligned. They were being slandered. They were being reviled because of their good behavior, because they were doing things that most people would look at and make fun of. They were being mocked for refusing to join in the widely practiced drunken debauchery and immorality that was common in practice in that culture. So the pressure is real for these people. And so in order to help his fellow Christians to resist this peer pressure, the pressure from the world to conform to the ways and the values and the thinking of the world system that is against God and to conform to the pagan society around them. Why? So you'll just be more comfortable, less suffering, less difficulties, less, less problems in your life. That's why people are being encouraged to do that. Peter gives them three reasons as to why they should not yield to the pressure. He reminds them of three spiritual realities that you cannot escape, that will compel a true follower of Jesus toward a holiness of life. So the first one here is found in verses 13 to 16. And essentially we would say, well, he talks about girding your minds for action. In other words, be prepared to, uh, uh, to not be caught off guard, but to keep sober in your spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, or children of obedience, do not be conformed to the former desires which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, quoting now from Leviticus, be, you should be holy, for I am holy. So the first reason why Peter says don't yield to this pressure to conform by the world, he says, since God calls and regenerates and adopts believers as his children. They are to resemble God through obedient living. He calls them to resemble God through obedient living. Again, Peter knows that the pressure to conform is a very strong pressure. It's so easy to slip into worldly compromise. The greater and greater the pressure But he goes back and brings them to the basic building block of all reality. Something you cannot escape, something that is true, whether you deny it or whether you buy into it, it is true nonetheless, God is holy. God is holy. He is set apart. That's what it means. Set apart in what sense? Well, he's set apart from creation because he's not created. He is completely different than all the other forms of creation. And he is also set apart from all other gods, small g, that this world seems to make much of. And indeed, it is God who is absolutely unique. And he is not the offspring of other gods. He is the self-existent. He is the all-glorious, set-apart one. That is the God that Peter reminds him of. And holiness is a word that sort of defines all of other all the other attributes of God so that God's love is a holy love his power is a holy power his wisdom is a holy wisdom and on and on and on it is God who is separate from all that is not like him and so God hates and despises anything that is contrary to his nature he has a holy hatred For sin. So Peter brings them back to this very important principle, and I could have taken 20 minutes to just walk you through a survey of passages in this Old Testament and New Testament that affirm again and again and again the holiness of God. But Peter here reminds them, having quoted Leviticus, of another basic reality. Not only is God holy, but everyone God graciously calls. And God regenerates, brings them, makes them alive. They're born again. They are called and they are regenerated so that they might be like him in holiness. You see, the Israelites, they were privileged to be called by God. They were told the implications of God's gracious treatment toward them of being called to be his people. And so he says in Leviticus chapter 20, he says, I The Lord, I, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. You belong to me. Therefore, you're not to take part in loyalty to all of the other loyalties of the world. God similarly calls to himself the church. If you look at the word church in the New Testament, ecclesia, It means to call out. The called out ones is literally what the word means there. It's made up of Jew and Gentile. And they are the ones who are called out by God unto himself, separated and called out by God. Christians are called out so that we might accomplish the purposes of our God. Now, let me just be very clear here. There's two different kinds of holiness we can talk about. Uh, In from a theological standpoint, there is the holiness of what we call positional holiness. Positional holiness refers to that which God grants us the status of being holy and set apart unto himself. It's a one-time, one-moment action of God in which we are declared to be holy by God when we come into faith, when we are regenerated. And therefore, at that moment, God gives us Jesus' righteousness and he makes us holy and blameless before him. That's position of holiness. It's no surprise to see that Peter, here in this passage, and if you look back through chapter 1, notice that he alludes very clearly to God taking this action in the life of the believers there. He says in verse 3 of chapter 1, God caused you to be born again. Verse 15, the Lord called you. He called you and you are children. Verse 14, verse 17, we call him father, therefore. He's just going back over these very essential reminders of their positional holiness before God. And since God has caused us to be born again, we are his adopted children. And since he is holy, it's only reasonable that we should resemble him as our holy father. That is, we're being set apart by God for his purposes, his patterns, his priorities. True children of God who have been made alive in Christ by the Holy Spirit are to reflect the likeness of their adoptive Holy Father in all the areas of their life. And that's when we call now this challenge of taking us in our position of holiness and working that out into the day-to-day life, which we would call personal holiness. Holiness. So it's positional holiness is what God does and we're declared to be that way at one time moment in our life. And then there's the process of personal holiness that's worked out over a period of our lifetime. Now, of course, Peter, again, quoting Leviticus, makes the point, you be holy, God said, because I am holy. But we know that's also true in the New Testament as he speaks of what is the will of God for his people. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three, this is the will of God. Even your sanctification, that's a fancy word that means even your being holy, personal holiness. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. So it's no question that's God's will for us. It's not a suggestion that God is saying. You know, it's a good idea if, you know, you as my child... I would suggest that you might want to be holy. No, God doesn't say it that way. He says his expectation for each of his children is what? This is my will for you, that you be holy like I am. Now notice the phrase there in verse 14. Children of obedience. Children of obedience. I think... Peter is very clever in how he coins that phrase because he's saying obedience is your parent and you're the children of obedience. In other words, it is expected that you're going to be like your parent and resemble God morally. You're going to resemble God spiritually if you truly are born again. To be set apart unto God as dearly loved adopted children means that we are to be characterized by obedience to our Holy Father. Before conversion, before regeneration, our lives are characterized by, obviously, we do whatever we feel like doing. We do what we desire to do. We lived lives that are basically feeling-oriented lives. This is before you're a Christian. You just do whatever feels good, right? But after we're saved... After God adopts us into his family, we are to begin a process by which we are learning to obey God, even when we don't feel like it. I think this is one of the things that came to my mind as I was thinking about this process of being like God and choosing that, even when we don't feel like it. I thought about the metaphor of Jesus saying, I want you to come and follow me and wear the yoke Wear my yoke upon you and learn of me, he says, for I am meek and gentle in heart. Why are we going to wear a yoke? Why does does an oxen wear a yoke? So that that beast of burden, that oxen can be directed into doing and being working together side by side with another oxen led by that farmer into doing and accomplishing something good in that field. And so I think Jesus is saying, is saying, he's listen, I want you to follow and stay in line with my directions. I want you to learn of me. I want you to know what I lo- love. I want you to know what I hate. I want you to know what I'm passionate about. I, know what, I want you to know what I would avoid and the things I do avoid. I want you to take up your cross daily, die to self, and follow me. You say, well, how are we going to do that? What does that mean, day-to-day life? I'm convinced the key here is that we must renew our minds. Our minds are absolutely essential in seeing this thing work out in personal holiness. Because God has given us and revealed to us his will. He's revealed to us his instructions. He has revealed to us what it is that is obviously what he desires his children to do or not do. It's all recorded in the word. And yet every day we are constantly bombarded by commercials, by different messages and the lyrics of songs. We're bombarded by all sorts of entertainment, by ways of movies and all sorts of um, programming that has now been developed. it's just endless amounts of, of uh, choices that are available to us in YouTube and on, online. I mean, it's just everywhere and in this we're constantly being given messages we're being we're having various things depicted for us that years ago would have caused our relatives to shudder with embarrassment with dismay with shock and yet it has become normalized to be exposed to a greater and greater extent of violence, greater and greater extent of immorality, greater and greater extent of profanity. It just continually just ups at one more level. And so we after a while, we're not even shocked by it. I, I would tell you, I think that more and more, we have become so, in some ways, immunized, or we, we've become accustomed to having things that are offensive no longer offend us. And so we tend to have our standards lowered and lowered and lowered with every generation. And I'm convinced it's gotten to the point now where I wonder if some of our younger generation, they no longer have much of a conscience anymore about what they watch and what's normal and what's absolutely ridiculous and what's offensive to God or what is absolutely impure and it's like there is no more line of demarcation as to what is morally upright and what is morally repugnant. There's a lot of moral confusion. And the more we become mesmerized by various forms of entertainment, video particularly, as Neil Postman pointed out in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, the more we become enamored with these things It shortens the attention span so that we have no ability or interest to quietly read and reflect on the Word of God. We have just an attention span that lasts about five seconds. Otherwise, I'm on to something else. Watching, undisciplined watching of various forms of entertainment like television diminishes our ability to communicate. It limits our capacity for abstraction. We can't seem to generate our own creativity, our own way of amusing ourselves by coming up with creative things. We just sort of sit there and we're numb. Entertain me becomes the mode of most people in today's world. And so we become a people who can't talk about God very well because we don't communicate very well with people to start with. The more we are enamored with so much entertainment. I would urge you the moment you find something you know for sure that would be something that would offend Christ, cut it off. Turn it off. Leave it off. Try to go a period of time in your life fasting away from all this kind of noise and entertainment things we put in front of us. Live a little, little take a day and say nothing today. I'm not going to listen to anything. You'd be amazed how strange that is and almost how much time you have, how much you have your mind more aware of the fact that you're thinking and processing things. My friend, we're, unless we are consciously evaluating the things that we're watching, the things that we're hearing, the opinions that are being shown to us again and again, we are going to be shaped by them. We're gonna become accustomed to things that we hear and see done in the movies. And we think it's acceptable then to use foul language, we think it's acceptable then to dress immodestly, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to practice any and every kind of sexual immorality. I assure you that when my earthly father was alive, he never ever tolerated and accepted the notion that I should use the same foul language that you could hear in a, any R-rated movie. He never, or any kind of rap music, he would never accept that to be spoken in our home. I knew what offended my father. He made it very clear what it was, and I'm thankful that he did. But I'm wondering how many of us, again, have become, it's just something common and you just deal with it. It's so pervasive. Now, my father was a godly man. In many ways, he wasn't perfect. But it was expected that his children imitate him. It was expected of me that I would follow in his ways in those areas that were commendable. And let me say to you, you will never increase the level of true resemblance of God as your father until your mind, until your thinking are governed and guided by the word of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you can't escape it. We must continually renew our thinking. That's true for the first century believers who were feeling the pressure. It's true for 21st believers who feel the pressure of our world, our secular world, who squeezes God out of the equation and tries to push us into this mold of worldliness. And I'm convinced that one of the ways he does it so effectively, the, the, the God of this world, is through technology, through our entertainment and through the various means in which our minds are hearing message after message after message. Second point I want to make here, based on verses 18 to 21, is that Peter points out the role of Christ, and that Christ ransomed believers at great cost. And so we've, since that happened, we've been set free from our sinful past. We ought to be internally motivated to pursue those things that are pleasing to the one who delivered us. So you notice there in verses 18 and following, he says, Don't you know that you're redeemed, with, not with perishable things like money that's been coined from the futile way of life you inherited, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the first reason that we're to live wholly separated lives to God is for family resemblance. The second reason is because Christ paid a costly ransom to set his people free. Free from captivity. Free from being in bondage to sin and evil and wickedness. And So he goes back and again reminds them there's a, a long, eternal, wise plan of God, send his one and only son to liberate his chosen ones who were in bondage, who were in debt. And Peter reminds uh, his audience that, listen, Christ paid to set you free to liberate you, not with millions and millions of dollars, but he paid it as the God-man who himself became the perfect substitute sacrifice for you. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Holy Son of God, he's the one who was laid on the altar. He gave his life a sacrifice unto God for us. Why? That we might be set free from the life that we tend to live now on our own. That we might be set free to be what? People who are no longer bound and living under the tyranny of the evil one, but now set free to enjoy God, enjoy imitating him. It's amazing the price that Jesus paid. Here the priceless Son of God. How can you calculate the value of his dying for you? Here he endures the wrath of God that we deserve so that we might be free of all condemnation. So here's a question. If Jesus's costly death was for my sake, if his costly death was for your sake, doesn't it make sense to assume that it is a big deal if you live an unholy life in light of that? I came across a quote by J.C. Ryle, who was a very gifted and godly man, pastor who lived in the late 1800s. And he wrote this. He said, Surely that man must be an unhealthy state of soul who can think of all that Jesus suffered and yet cling to those sins for which that suffering was undergone. It was sin that wove the crown of thorns. It was sin that pierced the Lord's hands and feet and side. It was sin that brought him to Gethsemane and Calvary, to the cross. And to the grave. Cold must be our hearts if we do not hate sin and labor to get rid of it. Unquote. So true. Paul put it this way. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 15. Paul shows the logic of Jesus' redemption. He says, Jesus died for all. that They who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now notice how Peter applies this principle of what Christ's work in paying this redemption. Verse 18, he emphasizes the fact that Jesus in shedding his precious blood to liberate us from our shameful past and from any and all formative sinful influences. See, some people assume that they are unable to somehow adopt more holy habits of life because their home where they were growing up, the kind of family dynamic that they were exposed to, the kind of influences and associations they had in school, in their neighborhood, among their relatives, is that these things have had a shaping and influential part of their life. And therefore, I just can't seem to, Escape these things. Peter calls it empty patterns of life. Vain, worthless patterns of life. Things like drunkenness, gluttony, fighting, cursing. What Peter's saying here is, listen, if you understand what Christ did for you, these patterns of life can be changed. And that's why letter B in your outline, radical change is Possible. Why? Because Jesus shed his precious blood for your sake to set you free. Therefore, you can adopt a new pattern of life. You can learn new holy habits. You don't have to be enslaved to the ways in which you learned in childhood or during your youth or during those wild college years which you were on campus and it was just one hedonistic party after another. You don't have to imitate those people who are around you and influencing you in those days. What he says here is that you can be changed. Again, because of this passage, I've thought a lot about my father this week, and I recalled an interview that I had with my father when he was probably in the last five years of his life I sat down and just asked him a ton of questions. Tell me about this all the beginning of his growing up years. And I took some notes and eventually put it together into some sort of little folder that I gave to each of my siblings. But one of the things I learned about my father was that I asked him, tell me about your father, my grandfather, and how you related to him growing up. And he said the saddest things. He said, well, my father, I don't ever recall once that he ever told me that he loved me. He says, as a matter of fact, I don't recall my father ever playing with me. We never played ball together. We never did anything that seemed to be amusing or fun uh, that was just directed toward me. My father was uh, his only son, and then he had a sister, so it was just two kids. And I thought back and thought to myself, that is remarkable because my father endlessly told me that he loved me. And he spent much time with me and my brothers playing ball, doing things together, teaching us how to play sports, taking us uh, to go target shooting and all kinds of just appropriate ways to spend time with father and son. And I thought to myself, here's an example of man who because of his faith in Christ, had learned to do things that he had never been taught by example at home. Now listen to me say this and listen clearly. You are not forever controlled by what other people did to you or said about you or forced upon you or made you do when you were younger. The gospel says you are no longer in Christ. You are no longer enslaved in shame and in any kind of empty pattern of life in Christ, you are set free to stop living for yourself and to have the freedom now to live in a new way, to live for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And because Jesus paid the ransom on the cross, your ransom, you are liberated. You're set free. You don't have to be bound by those things. You don't have to live up to other people's expectations. You don't have to be bound to all of the the constraints that were put upon you when you were younger. You can now live apart, set apart for God. Now you can live out in that freedom and enjoy God and know that he is enjoying you. Hallelujah, my friend. Hallelujah. Peter's saying, you don't have to give into that pressure. And thirdly, based on verse 17. I had to wrestle with this one quite a bit until I tried to think I I figured it out. But um, the principle here is verse 17. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. Here's what I drew from that. Since God is both a loving father and a wholly impartial judge, Believers will be held to account as to how they represent him as in their behavior as citizens of heaven with reverent fear. Reverent fear. Peter's concerned. Is, this verse 17, he's trying to aim at the issue of the, a distorted view of God has a very bad effect upon a follower of Christ. The view of God must have a, a kind of a big impact. And so I just go back to remind you of what Jesus taught about what it's like when sometimes we think, well, God's not around, so therefore what difference does it make? And let's just sort of do what we want to do. So Jesus tells a story in, Matthew, in Mark 13, 13th chapter of Mark, verse 33. He says, listen, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. It's like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper of his estate to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when your master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or midnight or at cock crowing or in the morning. Those are the different, um, there's four different times during the night, and that's the way they sort of kept track of them at 9, 12, 3, and 6. And lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now why is Jesus telling that story? Because he knows our hearts have a tendency to slack off. A tendency to what? To sort of, sort of not be so concerned about what I do or what I don't do when there's, Appears to be less accountability. When the boss at your workplace steps out of the office and is gone for the afternoon, wouldn't you say it's typical that the level of efficiency in what the work that gets done tends to what? It declines. People are talking longer, lingering at the water fountain, they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing, they're going shopping online, which they Probably you're doing the bosses there anyway, but I mean, people just, they don't care. And what happens if the boss, for example, spends all winter in Florida? The potential is that things begin to decline. Right before Jesus ascended back to heaven 2,000 years ago, he said to his followers, listen, you are my kingdom representatives. And so some people incorrectly assume that our loving father, heavenly father, well, He'll understand if we slack off. He'll understand if we lose our distinctive role of being light and salt in this world. He'll understand if we cave into the pressure and conform to this world and fit into the ways of the world and start thinking and acting and speaking like those around us in the world system. But Peter says, no, no, no. God is a loving father. That is true. But he also is an impartial holy judge. And we are pilgrims in this world. We're only here for a short period of time. We're waiting for a new heavens and new earth, yes. But beware of the sin of accommodation. Beware of, of thinking that if you're going to lose these distinctives of what it is that means we are followers of Christ. And if we adopt the unholy habits of the world. If we live self-absorbed patterns of life. If we're motivated primarily by self-fulfillment then we will have failed to remember that God is going to impartially evaluate our service for him. Now the point here, I'm convinced, in verse 17, is not to motivate us by guilt. The motivation he seeks to instill in us, in verse 17, is a motivation for the honor of the name of our great and wonderful holy God. He says in fear. Our Holy Father will never be pleased to have his children dishonoring his name, his reputation by living a life of worldliness that's characterized by an unholy life. Instead, knowing our Heavenly Father is going to hold us accountable, if you will, or he's going to at least evaluate our our service for him, we're to conduct our lives in what? A godly, reverent fear. Lord, I just want to show great respect for you and your name. I want to live as your representative because I represent you. You are my king. How could I not take that to heart with deep respect? Now, do we live in a hostile world? Absolutely. It's not going to get much better, folks. And yes, we were going to be ridiculed. Yes, we're going to face further hostility. We're going to suffer more and more as followers of Jesus Christ. But my friend, don't expect Jesus to think it's nothing and to somehow dismiss it if we completely forsake his ways and become unholy in our personal holiness. He calls us to carry on our pilgrimage in holy fear. Why? Why? because He is our all-glorious, wonderful King who's coming someday at a time we do not know But we're to be like Him because He's made us His own. Let's pray. I wonder what would happen if I were to invite myself to your home today So let's walk through all of your house. Let's just see what it looks like. And I would imagine some of us would say, oh my, I'd rather you not see that particular room or that particular closet or that particular area of my house. In some ways, many of us are not prepared for guests to see all of the different components of our living spaces. I wonder if some of us this morning have areas of our lives that we've been hiding, we've been tolerating, we've been normalizing them, and accommodating the world. So is the Lord calling you today to say, Listen, I want to call you out of an empty way of living, and I want to call you to embrace. The Savior who gave himself for you, who himself took on himself all of our sin, all of our punishment, all of our condemnation. And freely gives you the righteousness of Christ on the basis of faith. Just merely trusting him. Today is the day which the gift of becoming a child of God could become your reality. Ushering you into all sorts of change in your life. You say, well, I've, most people don't know what goes on in my life. I've, got, I've done well in hiding all those things. I have a pretty good self-image uh, for other people to look at what my life is like, but they don't really know what goes on in my imagination. They don't know what goes on when I'm in front of a computer or a screen. They don't know what I'm feeding my soul on, things that are of this world. My prayer today is the Lord will draw us into a holy reverence for him, a childlike love that desires to be like him and a heart that's grateful for the freedom to be new people and to break from our past and to see a new way of living unfold. Lord, I pray today that you would, by your Holy Spirit, lead us into greater holiness of life. I pray that you would help us to let go of things that we need to let go of and help us to pursue the things that we know full well please you. And Lord, I pray that if nothing else, we would very deliberately and earnestly carve out time to listen to your word, to read your word, to meditate upon the word that we might hear you speak to us through your word and that we might understand more why we should hold you with such reverent fear and deep appreciation and love. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.